0: Welcome to the Sadler Lectures Podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. The third section of the third chapter of Pirado's book, Philosophy as a Way of Life, is called Learning to Die. And in a good bit of ancient Western philosophy, thinking about and approaching, trying to understand, and in some respect, prepare for death, lends a perspective to philosophers that, as I don't know, is often lacking to so many others. And this doesn't just take place in ancient philosophy. You might think about all the important ways in which this affects things in medieval thought and down to the present time. He talks about philosophy as training for death, and that's a way of understanding philosophy that comes to us from Plato, but also from Socrates, Plato's teacher. And as Ados says, here we go, Socrates' death was the radical event which founded Platonism. Now, that's an interesting thing to say. You might think about it as, oh, well, his teacher dies. Plato goes off to try to figure out how could this catastrophe happen? Okay, there's all that there. That's true. And that's been noted by other authors. But Ado points out something else that's quite important. He says... The essence of Platonism consists in the affirmation that the good is the ultimate cause of all beings. And you might think about the Symposium and the Republic and then, you know, how that could get transposed into other works as well. What does it really mean? So, Here he turns to a 4th century Neoplatonist who says, if all beings are beings only by virtue of goodness, if if they participate in the good, then the first must necessarily be a good, which, and here's the key point, transcends being. Here is an eminent proof of this. Souls of value despise being for the sake of the good whenever they voluntarily place themselves in danger for their country, their their loved ones, or for virtue. That is, they place their existence at risk. They take the chance of non-being because there's something that's greater than even being or existence and that is goodness and we can see examples of this not just within the platonist movement but within things that are being said within the stoic movement and by people admiring them like for example cicero so this is a, a very important thing to note Plato sees Socrates dying for the sake of virtue, for the sake of something that transcends life, transcends being. Obviously, it can only be actual, existing, if it is in being, but is willing to go all the way to the end. So, like he says, Socrates exposed himself to death for the sake of virtue. He preferred to die rather than renounce the demands of his conscience, thus preferring the good above being and thought and conscience above the life of his body. Now, Ado says at this point, this is nothing other than the, with an italics, right? So, emphasizing this, the fundamental philosophical choice. Why? Well, because there's something that's being placed in complete perspective in in doing so. Now, in the Platonic conception of this, as he notes, death is the separation of the soul from the body. The body dies, decomposes, the soul is separated, continues to live on. There's discussions of this, and he references, for example, the dialogue, the Phaedo. We see many other dialogues talking about this, and one of the things that often gets left out is, well, what happens when we die? And, And here we could be misled a little bit by Plato's myths or stories about, you know, reincarnation and the soul uh, of some people who are really bad being put into wolves or things like that or going to punishments because what happens when we're dying when the soul is on its own is you could say uh, at least for the philosopher the possibility of getting past individuation and being enslaved to the passion so he quotes this portion from the phaedo the death in question here is the spiritual separation of the soul and the body separating the soul as much as possible from the body accustomed it to gather itself together from every part of the body and concentrate itself until it's completely independent and have its dwelling so far as it can, both now and the future, alone and by itself, freed from the shackles of the body. The body as a prison is another way that it's, it's talked about in the Phaedo, right? So spiritual exercises are supposed to, in some way, alter the soul to prepare it for separation. He talks about this a little bit later as well, concentration of thought upon itself by means of meditation and an inner dialogue. So he brings up the Republic, once again in the context of the tyranny of individual passions and then he tells us about the dreams the savage part of the soul does not hesitate in thought to try to have sex with its mother or anyone else man god or animal it is ready to commit any bloody crime there is no food it would not eat and in a word it does not stop short of any madness or shamelessness so you know you want to try to leave that sort of thing behind and you could also think about the timaeus where the rational part of the soul is immortal but the other parts of the soul are actually mortal and to the body. In the Phaedo, he describes a spiritual exercise. When a man does not go to sleep before he's awakened his rational faculty and regaled it with excellent discourses and investigations, concentrating himself on himself, having also appeased the appetitive part and calmed the irascible part. Once he has calmed these two parts of the soul and stimulated the third in which reason resides, it is then that the soul best attains to truth. So this is something that one would do each night as you know, one gets ready to go to sleep, that would be part of the spiritual practice or exercise. Now it's interesting because Addo says, Plato does things this way. The the whole Platonist tradition is oriented around this, but we could also look at other traditions that likewise use death as a way of putting things into perspective and don't have the sort of metaphysical, you could say commitments that Platonists have. So we could think about two that are clearly materialist in the ancient period, Epicurus and the Epicureans and the Stoics, He also mentions Martin Heidegger, the great existentialist and phenomenologist philosopher of the 20th century who talks about being towards death as something central. So he tells us that this has been taken up in by such adversaries of Platonism as Epicurus and Heidegger. And then he tells us really the only people to try to attempt to look at death are philosophers beneath all of their diverse conceptions of death one common virtue recurs again and again, lucidity, being straight about things, understanding how things really are. So he says, for the Epicurean, the thought of death is the same as the consciousness of the finite nature of existence, and it is this which gives an infinite value to every moment. Each of life's moments surges forth laden with incommensurable value. He, then he talks about the Stoics. In the apprenticeship of death, the Stoic discovers the apprenticeship of freedom. Then he says, philosophy is still a training for death for a modern thinker such as Heidegger. For him, the authenticity of existence consists in the lucid anticipation of death. And it's up to each of us to choose between lucidity and diversion. So a number of different approaches. And he could multiply this far beyond just these four, you know, of the Platonist, the Epicurean, the Stoic, and the Heideggerian. And he brings up three key concepts that are part of a philosophical orientation towards and preparation for death. One is realizing the insignificance of at least many human affairs. The fact that a lot of the matters that we take so seriously, like, you know, giving the speech that we're going to give and having every single word be right. And then having everybody like it and come up to us, death can take that away in an instant and render it, meaningless. What is meaningful? What does survive death? What does go on? What, what can we have as a legacy? That's what philosophy orients us towards, whether it be, you know, the Epicurean or the Stoic thinking about this, or whether it be Plato in the symposium talking about our desire for immortality. So there's that. And then another key aspect is, and this is an interesting thing to say, contempt for death. Now, why would philosophers be contemptuous of this thing or non-thing that is putting everything into perspective? Because as it turns out, death is not as bad as so many people make it out to be. And by realizing that, by making that part of your perspective, you do have a freedom that many other people lack. Then he talks about a universal vision characteristic of pure thought, right? And that's something worth bringing up. A little bit earlier, he says that training for death is a spiritual exercise which consists in changing our point of view. We're to change from a vision of things dominated by individual passions, that is emotions, desires, affects, individual ones, to a representation of the world governed by the universality and objectivity of thought. He says this constitutes a conversion, metastrophe brought about with the totality of the soul. And so that is part of this universal vision, this transformation. And then Addo says something really quite interesting. He points towards physics. And physics, we typically think of as this university discipline that, you know, looks at basic particles and might feed into chemistry or something like that. For the ancients, physics means the study of the natural world and of things that change per se. And so psychology would be part of physics, astronomy would be part of physics, all sorts of things fit into physics. Why were they so interested? He says physics itself can become a spiritual exercise, when we look at it in relation to death. And then he talks about it being situated on three levels. So he says in the first place, physics can be a contemplative activity, has its end in itself, providing joy and serenity to the soul, liberating it from its day-to-day worries. This is what Aristotle is doing, talking about the contemplative life. This is something that Epicurus has his people doing in the Epicurean garden where they're, you know, withdrawn from politics, but they do study the natural world. He actually wrote a long treatise on nature. And so that's a a significant part of it. Even the Stoics say, well, we can look at the universe as well. Philo of Alexandria and Plutarch also bring this up. And so there's all sorts of ways we can, we can think about this, but then we can go beyond that. The second level is of what, Ado is calling a imaginative overflight, which causes human affairs to be regarded as of little importance. Here he brings up Marcus Aurelius and his meditations and the famous passage that gets used for what we call the exercise of the view from above. Suppose you found yourself all of a sudden raised up to the heavens and you're to look down on human affairs and all their motley diversity, you would hold them in contempt if you were to see in the same glance, how great is the number of beings of the ether and air living around you. So engaging in physics in this sense also lends us a certain perspective. And, And Marcus does that not just in terms of space, you know, go up and see how little all the people are. They're like ants, but also in terms of time. And this is where we get back to death. Think about your present right now and the short amount of time from your birth to your inevitable death. And then think about the eons of time before and yet to come that helps to put things into perspective. Then there's this aspect of, we can call it transcending individuality. He says there's a third degree in the spiritual exercise of the vision of totality and elevation of thought to the level of universal thought. This is a way in which we can die to our individuality. In so doing, we don't lose everything. As he says, we accede on the one hand to the interiority of our consciousness, And on the other, to the universality of the thought of the all. And so he brings up a passage from Plotinus and says, with Plotinus, we now return to Platonism. There is this possibility of detaching ourselves from our own individuality and through spiritual exercises coming to grasp a more objective, a more universal, whatever you want to call it, thought, the good logos, and to find ourselves, our true selves, within that rather than in this body and its passions and all of the determinate individual things about it. So there's a lot of different ways in which death gets used to provide us with perspective, and these tie in directly with spiritual exercises, according to Pierre Audeau.